2: The most important belief that you'll ever have in life is your belief in God. There's nothing that is more important than that. Because your belief in God is going to determine every other belief that you have. What you believe about God will determine ultimately what you believe about you. Because you and I define ourselves on the basis of our view of God. And then, of course, what you believe about God is going to affect how you view other people. If you have the right view of God, you have the right view of other people. And how you view God, how you believe or what you believe about God will affect your view of the world around you because you either accept what we would call a biblical mindset or a God-centered worldview or a worldview that is opposite to God's perspective. And so your beliefs matter a whole lot. Sadly, when it comes to our beliefs about God, there are a lot of us, for a variety of different reasons that we have some warped opinions of God. Many times we don't even realize how we're looking or thinking about God because of the life experiences and exposures that we've gone through. It's kind of changed our perspective of God and it's affected us in terms of our belief about Him. And so we're going to take a look today in a few moments at some things that the Bible teaches us very clearly about who God is and what we're to believe about Him. But before we do that, I want to lay out for you some of, the, uh, some of the misconceptions that people have about God. I'm going to share with you seven misconceptions that people have about God. First of all, people, many people, some people, I don't know how many people, but some people believe that God doesn't even exist, that God is a figment. Of people's imagination. We refer to those individuals as atheists, that they have no belief in God, that there's not a God. And there's a certain percentage of people that have ventured into their life saying, I'm an atheist, I don't believe that God exists, or an agnostic. An agnostic is, I'm not sure whether God exists. You can't know whether God exists or not. And there's all kind of variations of this. And an atheistic or an agnostic perspective of God or skeptical perspective of God is based upon primarily a natural, naturalistic view of the world or a materialistic view of the world. That all there is in the world is that which is natural or materialistic, that there's nothing uh, such as the supernatural. So everything can be explained in natural terms. And so that's how people get to oftentimes this atheistic belief. The second misconception about God is that God does exist but he doesn't get involved with the with the world or with people. He's sort of disengaged, dis- detached and disconnected. This is referred to as deism. God maybe started the world but he's not really engaged. He's sort of backtracked from everything and sort of lets the world run on its own. The third one and perhaps more prevalent in the culture that we live in and perhaps in even in believers' lives, is a belief that God is angry and hard, tough and mean, abusive, overly demanding. I'm going to give you a lot of adjectives here. Domineering is grumpy, capricious, moody, temperamental, arbitrary, contrary and partial. Any of those words can describe at times how people think of God. And many times this is based upon an experience that someone has had in life, primarily with an earthly father or earthly experiences they've had and they translate that to God. And For example, if their earthly father has been very, very abusive or angry, there's a tendency subconsciously consciously even in relating to God to sort of project that over onto God or fourthly some believe that God is cold and distant aloof and uncaring that he's sort of again backed away you can't approach him or he's unreachable that's number five unreliable or unknowable you can't have a personal relationship some people believe that God is outdated out of touch irrelevant or inept and the last one I'll mention is that God some people think of God as I'm going to give you some made-up words here you ready for them this is out of my dictionary. That God is Santa Clausish, okay? Vending machineish or demandish. What that means is this, that some people think of God as he's the one that I go to when I want something. And so he's sort of like the big Santa Claus in the sky. I can sort of go to him and say, hey, I need this, or I want this, or he's the vending machine that if I need something, if I can get the right amount in and push the right button, hopefully I can get something out. And there are people that view God only on the basis of what they perceive that they can get from him. As I said before, your beliefs about God matter a whole lot. Because what you believe about God is going to determine your relationship with God. You're going to relate to God on the basis of what you believe about Him. You'll relate to yourself on, those, on the basis of what you believe about God, others in the world around you. So I want to now give you just a few symptoms that you can look at in your life that might help you to, to understand whether your view of God has been twisted or distorted or is unhealthy in certain ways. Here are a few symptoms, like when you go to the doctor, you want to diagnose a problem on the basis of symptoms. And the first symptom is that you might serve and obey God out of duty or from the fear of punishment rather than from a heart of love. If you're serving God out of basically obligation or duty or because I don't want God to punish me, then there's something amiss in your view of God. Or maybe you have a consistent and persistent sense of guilt and shame and condemnation and failure as a Jesus follower. If you're living your life under that cloud of condemnation and guilt and failure, then that's, that's an indication that you haven't learned something about the nature of God when you feel like you can never quite be acceptable or pleasing to God. Then the third one is you mistrust God or His plan for your life. You're not quite sure if you can trust what God wants for you and you'd rather be in control of your life rather than God. The fourth one, this is a symptom that is prevalent in a lot of our lives. We have negative attitudes and words that are more prevalent and powerful in our lives than positive ones. If your bend in life is far more negative than positive, it's a chance that you need to improve your beliefs about God because God is a positive God, amen? The fifth indication that maybe your view of God has uh, needs some improvement is you, you may play more defense than offense in your life. What that means is this, you're always living life on the defensive, not much on the offensive in terms of progression and moving forward. And there are a lot of people who live their life in that way, a very protective, self-protective kind of life. And then number six, you resist lovingly and freely sharing your faith with others. If you have a hard time sharing your faith with others, sometimes that goes back, not always, but sometimes it goes back to a faulty view of God. Because think of this with me for a moment. If you really knew the goodness and greatness and beauty of God and the love of God in your life, would you not naturally want to share that with other people? Of course you would. But if you have a wrong view of God, you're not sure exactly who God is yourself, then you're going to have a harder time communicating that faith that you have in Him to others because, again, it's misled in some way. Number seven, you know that you have a faulty view of God when you've given up on yourself or your potential for spiritual growth. And I'll add number eight to this. You've given up on others and become bitter. When you've given up on yourself, you know what? You don't know God because God never gives up on you. Isn't that good to know? Okay. So I would encourage you to perhaps go back and think about those areas, the ways that we view God that are faulty and some symptoms that perhaps it will indicate where your view of God is. Now, that being said, I want to share with you today three things that the Bible teaches us about God, who is God and what are we to believe about God. The first one today is this. The Bible very clearly teaches us that we are to believe and know that God is a real and living God. One of the most powerful verses in all the Bible is found in the very first verse of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we find these words, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This sets the stage for the entire Bible. It opens up... This wonderful drama of God's interaction with humanity. And it starts with these words, in the beginning, that is, there was a beginning. And in the beginning, God pre-existed the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, there was a beginning and there was a cause that established creation. And this is extremely valuable for us to understand. Let me read you Hebrews chapter 11, verse number six. We'll talk more about this concept of God existing. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him, that is, this is the first step of your faith. Anyone that comes to him must believe that he exists. Notice that. And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So my question to you this morning, do you really believe that God exists and that God is the creator of all? And there are many wonderful arguments for the existence of God. I know that in the scientific realm, there are people who will try to argue against the existence of God. But I will tell you, there are far more arguments positively for the existence of God than there are for, against the existence of God. Let me just share four or five reasons why I believe in the existence of God. Apart from what the scripture teaches me, that's the most foundational thing. But let me give you some basic reasons why you can be confident in your belief in God. First of all, because of the argument of what's called first cause. And first cause says this, everything that comes into existence has a cause, right? And the universe that we live in and the life that we experience came into existence Therefore, it has a cause. Now, for many, many years, scientists believed that the universe was eternal, that the universe never had a beginning until something came along called the Big Bang Theory. And the Big Bang Theory identified the fact that there was a time in ancient history that there was this creation, that the universe is not eternal. I want to remind you today that the universe is not eternal, but God is that God pre-existed the universe. And so the universe didn't just happen. You can't have an effect or you can't have an event, an experience, an effect without having a cause. Cause is always the the predetermination of an effect. And so the reason that I believe in God, one of the reasons is because of the principle of the first cause. This world that we live in in life as it it exists would not be here without, without there being a cause for it. The second reason is by the reasoner argument of design. When you look at the world around you, you see that there's beautiful, wonderful design. You cannot have design without a designer. You can't just throw a bunch of stuff together and hope that it comes out looking nice because you shook it up in a box somewhere. It doesn't happen that way. For something to be able to function, for something to be able to have purpose and meaning, beauty and order and creation, there has to be a designer that creates a design. So when you look at the world, you see design all around you. When you look into just the DNA structure of humanity, there's beautiful design that is created there in a wonderful way. And so we have an argument for the existence of God by reason of first cause, by reason of design. There is a designer. And then thirdly, by reason of conscience and morality. How do we even have a conscience? Why do we have a conscience? Why do we have any awareness of something that is right or wrong? Well, Romans chapter 1 teaches us that God put that conscience in mankind. We have something that is that represents the nature of God within us. So first cause and design and conscience and morality. The fourth reason I will give you for the existence of God apart from the basic foundation of what the Scripture says about it is the fine-tuning of the universe. Scientists tell us that our universe and life is balanced on a nice edge. It means that if you adjust certain constants in the universe or in life, you don't have a universe or have life any longer. Let's talk about life on planet Earth just for a moment and talk about the fine-tuning. Do you know that gravity on Earth is fine-tuned to the exact place that it needs to be so that we can exist on this planet. If it were tweaked a little bit to this direction or to another direction, we would either explode or implode. But gravity is fine tuned for life. I think somebody's messing with the buttons. How about you? Okay. Let's talk about just the area of the sun and the moon. You know that we are the right distance from the sun. If we were closer to the sun, On the earth, we would burn up. If we were further away from the sun, we would all freeze. We could not exist. And so somebody, an intelligent being, an intelligent mind, put all of these things together. And that intelligent one is the creator. I'll give you another reason why I believe in the existence of God. I believe in the existence of God because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that as we go through this series together. But I have firm confidence that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And because I believe that Jesus is fully God, it points to the fact that there is a God. You can't rise from the dead without there being supernatural power. And so there are many wonderful reasons for the reality of a God. Let me encourage you, be confident in your faith that there is a real and living God that He exists. Number two, the second thing that I want to share with you this morning, what does the Bible teach us about God? Who is he? What are we to believe about him? We're to believe that there is one God eternally present in three persons. This is called the doctrine or the theology of the Trinity. Let me just say for a moment, if you go to your Bible or concordance and you look up the word Trinity, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the concept of the Trinity is in the Bible, that God is one, but he's also three. He's three, but he's also one. And there are a number of different reasons why the Trinity is so important to us. Because God exists in unity, but also in community. It's important to grasp. That the God of the Scriptures is a God who exists in unity, but also in community. It's a mystery. We can't explain it. No one can explain to you the mystery of the Trinity, 3 in 1, 1 in 3. But it's vital to our faith. Let me take you to 1 Kings chapter 8. Verse number 23, and I'll lay out for you one of the reasons why this is so important in terms of our belief about God. Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you. Notice that phrase. Say it with me. There is no God like you. Very important statement. There's no God like you in heaven above or on earth below You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. There is no God like you. Say it with me. There is no God like you. That the God of the Bible is unique. He is a God that exists in a unique way. And that's why we as Christians, we serve a unique God. We serve a God that is one, but yet three. We serve a God. He's not three gods. He's one God in three persons, three expressions to us. And we'll see the importance of that in a moment. Now, where is the concept of Trinity in the Bible? I told you the word Trinity is not in Scripture itself, but the concept is there. Notice Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let... Us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and in the, in the sky, over the livestock and over all the, uh, and, and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Notice that us and our, both uh, plural pronouns. So God says this is an engagement of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in creation. Now notice Matthew chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 as Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry at the waters at the Jordan River and the waters of baptism. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son. Whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So, what you see there at the baptism of Jesus, you see the Trinity, the unity of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, being baptized in the Jordan River, the Spirit of God descending upon him, and the Heavenly Father speaking from heaven, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Let me tell you why this is vital, because it reminds us, it teaches us of the reality that Jesus is not just some expression of God, Jesus is God. That's why this is vital, that when when Jesus came to earth, the Word became flesh. It was God going to the cross on our behalf, that God actually paid the price for our sins with His own very life in His Son. And so there we see the, the massive, beautiful picture of redemption and what Jesus did for us. And so it's a reminder that the Spirit of God is God. Jesus is God. God the Father is God. Three in one, three expressions. It helps us to understand the nature of who God is. You understand something about His nature as a Father. You understand something about the nature of God by looking at the Son. You understand something about the nature of God by understanding the work and presence of the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity gives us understanding of who God is. God is three, but He's also one. He's one, and He's also three. Number three, the third thing that I'll share with you today that we need to believe about God, my final point today, is that God is a good personal Loving and responsive God. Amen. Listen to Psalm 86, verses 5 through 10. I could have given you many, many passages. This just happens to be one of a number that we could have shared today, but listen to what it says. You, Lord, it's going to tell us who God is. You, Lord, are what is God? Forgiving and good, abounding in love. To all who call to you. That's that verse alone is extremely powerful. The scripture says, the psalmist says, Lord, let me remind myself of who you are. You are forgiving and you are good. You are abounding in love to all who call to you. That's the goodness, the forgiveness, the abounding love of God to us. And then notice verse number six. Hear my cry, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy, When I'm in distress, I call to you because you answer me. There's the responsive nature of God. Among the gods, that's a little g because they're they're, they're always in competition with the big g in your life. They're all little g's that are in competition for They're not really gods, but we put them in the place of God. Among the gods, there again, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name, for you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Then notice verse 15, the very same chapter. But you, Lord, are, again, he's describing who God is. You are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So anytime you think about who God is, this is how you need to think of him. What does the scripture teach us? That God is forgiving, that God is good, that God abounds in love, that God listens to us when we cry out to him, that God is compassionate, that God is gracious, that God is slow to anger. Anybody glad that he's slow to anger, right? Anybody push the buttons with God sometimes? God's abounding in love and that God abounds in faithfulness. This is the nature of God. He is a good, loving God. He is a good, compassionate God. Notice Jeremiah 33, 3. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Again, the responsiveness of God. John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. The words of Jesus. I am. So now he's going to tell us who he is. I am the... Good shepherd, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, Jesus could have simply said, I am the shepherd. That would have been wonderful in and of itself, but Jesus didn't say, I am the shepherd. He said, I am the Good shepherd, okay? So it's vital to understand. He's identifying the good nature of God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Whoever does not love does not know God because here's the definition God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. So the very nature of God is not that God does loving things. He does do loving things, but He does loving things because He is loving. By His very nature, there is love in His being. First John chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love Love because He first loved loved us. And so there's this, this there's this reciprocal or dynamic thing that occurs in our lives that the more we can understand of the love of God for us, the more capacity we develop to express that love to people around us. And so our even our ability to love effectively is determined to some degree by our understanding of the perfect love that God has. Notice again in John three, sixteen through eighteen as we wrap up here today. The perfect love that God has and how personal it is and how it's extended to all of us. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. The scripture says that God so loved the world. That concept of God loving the world is not just some generic. God just sort of loves a big blob of people out there. No, it's very personal in nature. That God so loves you. What I want you to see about that is this. The love that God has is not only personal... But it's extended to everybody. There's not a single person that that phrase the world doesn't reach. And it doesn't matter who you are today. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your background has been. It doesn't matter how many people have rejected you. Or how many people have told you they don't love you. What the Bible says is that God does love you. So that if you'll put your faith in Him. Then you can step away from condemnation. And step into life. And what we believe about God really matters. Because what you believe about God will set you up for beautiful success and fruitfulness in the way that you live your life. I don't mean success in the sense of just materialistic kind of things. But living your life in the way that is best lived, it will set you up for the best relationships of your life. Your view of God will set you up. The right view of God will establish something in your soul that will help you have the right software to run the other software, the other beliefs that are necessary for you to have a life that God wants you to experience.
1: Perhaps as you have been listening to today's broadcast, you felt a stirring in your heart, something that reminded you that you need to get something right in your life with God. The first way to start in that journey with God is to open your heart to Jesus Christ Now, if you just prayed that prayer with me, I want to encourage you with a promise from God's Word that says, when we call on God's name, when we call on the name of His Son Jesus, there is salvation that is brought to our lives. He changes us from the inside out, and the Bible says that if any person is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And that's what's happened to you today as you've opened your heart to Christ. Let me encourage you, you need to take the next step. The next step is to make sure that you get into a good Bible-believing church where you're studying God's Word and make sure you get a copy of God's Word and begin to read it. Spend some time each day in prayer. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Practical Living with Dale O'Shield, Senior Pastor of Church of the Redeemer in Maryland. If you would like more information, please visit our website at church-redeemer.org.